And May 40 here. Nobody loves love and inclusion more than me, but here's my life experience. I just find I collect a lot more money with a cricket bat and a smile rather than just a smile alone. So I'm all for the love and inclusion, but, but sometimes you just need a bloody cricket bat to get what's owed you. And this is also in celebration of what a magnificent performance by Australia going up against India today, right, in T20. Uh, all right, so it's like three-hour cricket matches, and India put something like 204 runs on the board. But did that deter Australia? No, nope, they, they won with uh, four balls left to bowl and uh, five wickets in hand. Let's, let's cut over to Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson's Night. Happy Tuesday. We'll admit it, up front, we can't get off this Martha's Vineyard story because there's just so much there. So last week, you'll recall, our Venezuelan visitors to this country, our brothers and sisters, as they're now known on CNN, took what amounted to the shortest vacation ever recorded to Martha's Vineyard. They were on that island for just hours, less than two full days. It was hardly enough time to pick up a fair trade coffee at Mocha Mott's in Vineyard Haven or go kiteboarding on South Beach. In fact, we have literally been talking about their trip longer than it lasted. It was that brief. On the other hand, so was the moon landing. So was the Wright brothers' first flight at Kitty Hawk. Duration is no measure of effect. Those brief hours our Venezuelan brothers and sisters spent on Martha's Vineyard changed history and left what they're calling an indelible mark on the people who live there. They enriched us, said one resident. We were happy to help them on their journey. Unfortunately, as it turned out, that journey ended abruptly at a military base on Cape Cod, where our Venezuelan brothers and sisters are now being held against their will. Prisoners in a country they thought was their own. There are no mocha mots where they are now. Kiteboarding is completely out of the question. It's just a bitter dream at this point. Now, the people of Martha's Vineyard knew this was going to happen. And yet, none of them thought to tell their Venezuelan brothers and sisters before it happened. Quote, I kept telling them it was like a dormitory. None of them, said Jackie Stallings, who lives on the island, as soldiers arrived to deport her Venezuelan siblings. I didn't want to say, you're going to a military base. Well, of course not. It's a dormitory. Just like your dad sent your elderly dog to a farm, because he'll be happier there. But the Venezuelans are not happier in military lockup. They loved Martha's Vineyard. As they told MSNBC, they considered it a paradise. They left here a few minutes ago. They moved to Cape Cod, to the joint base in Cape Cod, with new clothes, new cell phones, having talked to lawyers for the first time and saying that they were actually brought to paradise. They don't resent it for now, uh, and they know they're the lucky ones. So finally, one reporter over at NBC News tells the truth about what is actually a pretty sad story. Our Venezuelan brothers and sisters came to this country for a better life, and unlike so many, they actually found it. They arrived in one of the prettiest and most affluent destinations on the planet, an idyllic island with unlimited resources and many thousands of empty beds. And best of all, a population that claimed to love them. No person is illegal, read the lawn signs. But it was all a lie. 50 brown people was too many for the people of Martha's Vineyard. They called in the army to have them removed like trash, as one island resident said. So actually, judging by the behavior and not simply by their lawn signs, which is the best way to judge people, the people of Martha's Vineyard are not especially compassionate. In fact, they're small-minded and cheap and pretty nasty. 
as any waiter or babysitter who works on the island can tell you. So once again, the ones who claim to be the best people are actually the worst people. Remember when Jimmy Swagger got busted with hookers and porn? It's very much like that. The truth turns out to be the opposite of what they told you it was. It's highly embarrassing. But here's the weird thing. On Martha's Vineyard, they're not embarrassed at all. Jimmy Swagger famously apologized for his sins because he had shame. But the people of Martha's Vineyard have no shame. And so they're not apologizing. In fact, against all evidence, they're now bragging about how wonderful they are. Yesterday, Kerry Pickett of the Washington Times caught up with Martha's Vineyard's senior senator. That would be Ms. Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Listen to Elizabeth Warren's version of the Martha's Vineyard story. Wait. Wait. Come on. Martha's Vineyard is getting a bad rap right now. Martha's Vineyard? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. Well, I think they did. They, the people of Martha's Vineyard opened their hearts and were helpful mm -hmm. to uh, the migrants who were deceived mm -hmm. and uh, dropped there in a privately chartered jet mm -hmm. and treated like a prop for a governor who's just trying to make news. <laughs> well, if nothing else, it's interesting to see history history that we've watched unfold, a story in which the facts are not at all in dispute, get rewritten in real time. And you wonder how many other stories have been rewritten, but we can see this one being rewritten. In Elizabeth Warren's telling, actually, the people of Martha's Vineyard are the heroes and Ron DeSantis is the villain because he deceived them. Now, we just heard and it's, again, factually not in dispute that island residents deceived their Venezuelan siblings by telling them they were just going to a dorm. They're not being locked up on a military base like terrorists. So actually, the people of Martha's Vineyard, the residents there, are the ones who did the tricking. They tricked the Venezuelans into going to a military base. But that wasn't deception. No, according to Elizabeth Warren, it was an act of love. But at some point, whatever the people of Martha's Vineyard got what they wanted. Everything is back to normal there. The people who live there are relieved. They're not going to be 50 needing minorities in their midst to spoil of usual festivities, and that would include the food and wine festival. Each year for the past decade, more than 2,500 food and wine enthusiasts converge on the island of Martha's Vineyard for a culinary and wine extravaganza. So have an oyster, then taste the wine, then have your other oyster and taste the wine again. That's the routine for each one. So two oysters per wine, see how the oyster tastes on its own, see how you like the flavors of, of the wine with the oyster. The Martha's Vineyard Food and Wine Festival. Four days and three nights of celebration. <laughs> So just so you know, you taste the wine and then you eat the oyster and then you taste the wine again. Okay. And the way they mesh in your mouth, those flavors, the complexity of them, it's, it's like an explosion on your palate. And that's why thousands of people come to Martha's Vineyard every year for that festival. But guess who doesn't come? Venezuelans. Unless they're serving the oysters and pouring the wine. So really, we could go on at great length about this because it's just such a great story and reveals so much. But it's much bigger 
than the now-established fact that Martha's Vineyard is populated by nasty liberals who don't tip and don't actually want colored people in their midst. That's true. We know that now. But the bigger story, and the one that affects the rest of us, the other 340 million people who live here, is that what we saw in Martha's Vineyard is, in fact, just a taste of what is absolutely the official policy of the Democratic Party. And it is this. If your town votes the right way, then you get military protection. The military shows up immediately, 50 people, not hurting anybody. And the army comes to remove them. Can you imagine? Talk about a 911 call. It's pretty great. All you need to do is vote 80% for Joe Biden, and you can do that and throw some donations this way, too. But what about everybody else? Well, everyone else is SOL, and that would include all of us. Over the past 11 months, American authorities have encountered more than 2 million illegals along the southern border. That's the highest number ever recorded by the U.S. government. At least another 1 million were allowed into this country as so-called economic migrants, meaning they want better jobs because who doesn't want a better job? Hundreds, thousands more. We don't know the, the number, but clearly hundreds of thousands just sneaked in. That's according to the official data. Now, how many of those are headed to military bases for deportation? In how many cases did the U.S. military arrive to solve what is so clearly a disaster? Mm, zero, because it wasn't Martha's Vineyard. Now, we've been making a documentary on this. Uh, a documentary on the borders called Battle for the Borders coming out later this year. And in the course of reporting that out, we obtained this footage showing how some of these illegal aliens entered this country. These pictures were shot on July 23rd this year. How you doing? State police. Where are you from? Huh? Pakistan. What y'all doing here? Keep your hands out of your pocket. You got any weapons on you? You got an ID? No IDs? No machine gun, machine. Machine gun. So when people on Martha's Vineyard think of illegal immigration, they really think groundskeepers and waiters and people who work at the back end of the kitchen people who clean up or prepare the food. That's what illegal immigration is to them. They're not really thinking, none of us are really thinking that people might be showing up from Pakistan. Really, Pakistan? They didn't walk. And by the way, isn't Pakistan the place where ISIS has just called for jihadis to enter the United States and kill Americans? Why are these guys walking along a road in Texas? Now, during their interview with the police, both of the men you just saw admitted they were here illegally. They said they each paid thousands of dollars to be smuggled into the United States. This is very common now. It's not the immigration you remember. Who are these people? Do they mean us harm? It's not simply a matter of competing for jobs with American citizens. It's potentially a grave threat. And a lot of people like this are coming across the border right now. Here's Fox's Bill Malugin. For the very first time, a brand new Fox News drone equipped with thermal imaging captures images of mass illegal crossings in the middle of the night 
in Eagle Pass, Texas this morning. Migrants could be seen crossing the river and walking onto private property, where over 100 gathered and waited for Border Patrol processing. Sometimes the Del Rio sector here gets upwards of 2,000 illegal crossings in a single day, and this was only one of three huge groups we have already seen so far this morning, and it's not even noon yet out here. Take a look at this second group we saw. This was another group of about 200 who crossed illegally and started walking along a local highway out here. This is how it is in Eagle Pass. You can just be driving down the road and you'll see large groups of several hundred migrants just walking down the highway waiting to be picked up and apprehended by Border Patrol. So we're just getting word right now that the White House, many White House officials are telling, quote, journalists that they are very annoyed by Bill Malugin's reporting. It's, quote, alarmist. In other words, unlike reporters at the Washington Post and the New York Times, Bill Malugin doesn't think that he works for Joe Biden. He's taking pictures of what's actually happening. And that's wrong. What's interesting, given what is happening, which is that we are being invaded by people who have no right to be here for reasons that we don't really understand, is that none of the people who are complaining about Ron DeSantis sending 50 Venezuelans to Martha's Vineyard have said a word about what else is happening on the border. And a lot is happening. It's an ongoing humanitarian disaster, a tragedy for the people being trafficked, and they are being trafficked. But it's also an ongoing disaster for us who live here. It's our country. As Maluchin reported, human traffickers are loading more than a dozen people into the backs of cars right now, which is a disaster. Watch this. In Uvalde, Fox News was with Texas DPS troopers as they pulled over a human smuggler from Michigan. Hidden inside his trunk, two illegal immigrants from Honduras, all of them arrested. And in Kinney County, Texas DPS troopers pulled over this van and were shocked when they found 16 illegal immigrants being smuggled in the back. So it's a human wave, and that's not an attack on the people coming over here. They are being rewarded by the Biden administration in exchange for breaking our laws, for mocking our Constitution. They're being rewarded with public benefits. So why wouldn't they come? But the volume of this is without precedent in American history. And you have to ask yourself, what does this mean for the country? It's obviously destabilizing, but what does it mean long term for the country? Well, just to give you some perspective on the numbers here. As Neil Monroe at Breitbart has reported, in a given year, roughly three migrants are arriving for every four Americans who are born in this country. Three migrants for every four Americans born. Oh, remember the Great Replacement Theory? Was it a conspiracy theory? It sounds more like a statistical fact, actually. Was there a vote on this? Did we get to vote on this? Do people want this? Democracy, remember that? That's where people vote and get to decide what kind of government they get and what sort of policies that government enacts. No, no, no one voted on this. Nobody wants this. It's happening anyway against the will of the entire country. So what did Biden say about this? Well, here's what he said today. On the border, why is the border more overwhelmed under your watch, Mr. President? Because there are three countries that are never happened. There are fewer, there are fewer immigrants coming from Central America and from Mexico. This is a totally different circumstance. What's on my watch now is Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And the ability to send them back to those states is not rational. You could send them back and have them wait. We're working with Mexico and other countries to see if we can stop the flow. But that's the difference. 
Well, that's just completely insane, of course. They're coming through Mexico, and we control the Mexican economy. We could turn off the Mexican economy in one minute if we wanted to, of course. We're by far their biggest trading partner. And so we have an enormous amount of leverage over the Mexican government. And if we said the Mexican government, not one more crosses through your country in two hours, that'd be the end of it. Because no one wants to tangle with the federales. No one takes American law enforcement seriously because they know they're just going to direct you to the local welfare office. Nobody messes with the Mexican federales, period. And everyone knows that. But we're not doing that. What Biden said that is true is that as of this fiscal year, migrants in places other than the Northern Triangle countries in Mexico, specifically Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, do make up nearly 40% of the total apprehensions at the border as of last month. That's a 175% jump from last year. What Biden didn't say, of course, is that it's all his fault. He's solely responsible for this. He stopped deporting asylum seekers, and he's allowing asylum seekers with fraudulent claims to remain in this country. And of course, the message is going out to the world. Just show up and you'll be fine. So let's say you wanted to harm the United States. What would you do? Well, what did Fidel Castro do in 1980 with the Mariel Boatlift? He opened his prisons and mental hospitals and sent them to Miami, thereby changing Miami forever. Venezuela is doing something very similar. Venezuela is opening its prisons and sending them here. Breitbart reports tonight that DHS is warning border officials to be on the lookout for Venezuelan convicts entering the country. DHS indicates that, quote, the Venezuelan government is purposely freeing inmates, including some convicted of murder, rape, and extortion. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. Again, we've seen this before. And it's a catastrophe. Again, during the Carter administration, Fidel Castro's government, the Cuban government, did the very same thing. 125,000 people came to Florida. A Sun Sentinel article from 1985 estimated that out of the 125,000 migrants who came at the time, 16 to 20,000 were criminals. The Miami District Director for Immigration called it an invasion. Quote, the boat list should never have been allowed to happen. At any other time, it would have been an act of war. And Bill Clinton, who was governor of Arkansas at the time, said exactly the same thing. But a lot has changed since 1985. No one in the federal government will admit what this is, which is an invasion. And of course, the media are totally for it because, hey, cheap housekeepers. So law enforcement authorities, rather than doing anything about the people invading our country, are talking about prosecuting Ron DeSantis. As we understand it, 48 migrants were uh, lured, I will use the word lured, uh, under false pretenses uh, into, into staying at a hotel for a couple of days. Uh, they were taken by airplane. At a certain point, they were shuttled to an airplane uh, where they were flown to Florida and then eventually flown to Martha's Vineyard, again, under false pretenses is the, the information that we have, that they were promised work, they were promised the solution to several of their problems. We do have the names of some suspects involved that we believe are persons of interest in this case at this point, but I won't be parting with those names. Uh, I think, to be, to be fair, I think everybody on this call knows who those names are already, so I won't be naming any of them. That's appalling and shocking for any law enforcement official, a guy who carries a gun and has a right to shoot you, to be parroting Biden administration political talking points in front of a camera. That man should be ashamed. That is completely over the top that he would say something like this. This is all crazy. We're being invaded. And now they're talking about prosecuting Ron DeSantis because he sent 50 people to Martha's Vineyard who immediately deported so they wouldn't get in the way of the food and wine festival. True craziness. Stephen Miller worked at the White House for four years, mostly in immigration. He's the founder of America First Legal. 
We're happy to have him tonight. Stephen Miller, thanks so much for joining us. I have to say, Thank you. the one thing I admire about Martha's Vineyard is they don't even mess around. I wonder why Republicans don't do the same. Out of here, now, military base, you. Well, of course, that's what needs to be done. It needs to be done in every Republican state. And in the meantime, wherever it's possible, wherever it's necessary, we should be sending illegal aliens that can't be deported for any reason by the governors to wherever rich white Democrats live, the billionaires who are financing the monstrosity that Biden has wrought on our country. But I want to pick up on something very important that you said in your monologue, which is that illegal immigration is happening from countries that you never imagined in your entire life. Illegal immigration from Pakistan, Yemen, Senegal, Afghanistan, Somalia, Syria, all throughout Asia, all throughout the world. This is 150 countries descending illegally on our borders and being allowed free entry by the Biden administration. That includes a number that is never discussed and never reported and not even counted in official release statistics, which is that the Biden administration has helped human traffickers and smugglers relocate into the United States almost 300,000 unaccompanied minors. 300,000 minors. This is the largest human and child trafficking operation in world history. I dare anyone to find anywhere in the world that so many illegal immigrant children have been trafficked ever. And Biden is doing it using government resources, government planes, government workers. It's, it's beyond belief. And you wonder how long. I mean, by the way, if the law means nothing, then why are the rest of us following it? It's a war on the middle class, Tucker. And if it isn't yeah. reversed, there will not be a country left to save. I agree with that. Stephen Miller, thank you so much. Thanks, thank Stephen. So we told you last night about a teacher in Canada who enlisted his entire class into his sexual fetish. Just flat out, you're now participating in my sexual fetish. The school district is defending him, of course. We have an update on that story straight ahead. Thanks, Tucker. Okay, 40 here. Uh, just a stunning comment in the chat from a new member of the group here. Sarah Miller says, I was stabbed 13 times with a butcher knife by an illegal. I mean, how did you survive that? I mean, would you like to come on the show? That's just horrifying. Stabbed 13 times with a butcher knife by someone in the United States illegally. The kicker is he was stopped at the frontier, but they let him in because they thought he looked like a nice guy. Sarah also writes, they've always had people you pay to smuggle you across the border. That's not new. True. But what is new is that in 2020, Donald Trump essentially crushed illegal immigration. Did he stop every single people smuggler? No. But there was remain in Mexico policy. There are all sorts of policies that essentially crushed illegal immigration to an extent we haven't seen since the 1950s. And the Biden administration reversed those policies. So now we're getting flooded by an invasion of illegal immigrants. Sarah says this happened back in 2004 as a miracle. That's the only way my doctor described it, how Sarah was able to survive this horrific crime. Okay, so maybe the, the regulation 
about uh, Hasidic schools isn't just about uh, math and includes and understanding English. that part of a well-rounded education includes understanding diversity, understanding different people's experiences, um, being able to cope in the world and engage with people of all kinds of experiences, including yourself, your siblings, your children. I think a sound sex education and knowledge of diversity is part and parcel of a wholesome education. I think uh, the Hasidic community doesn't get to say that their children are above that or don't need access to that. I think that part of a well-rounded education. Yeah, part of a part of a well-rounded education. And does anyone know more about a well-rounded uh, education than that? What a delightful lass! I mean, what a lovely young lady! What what a model for for mental health. I mean, what a, a moral leader! What what are the the thousand points of light that that sustain this country? One of the one of the Lamed Vavniks, one of the the the, the secret hidden thirty six righteous saints who who keep the world going. I mean, oh, this lithesome young creature, Javi Javi Weisberger, her 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 pronouns are she, her. And you've got Yael Reisman here from Footsteps, which is an organization that helps former Haredi Jews assimilate to mainstream society. You get to I say mean, that their children are above that or don't what, need what access to that. What a powerful message. Like, part of no. a well-rounded education no, you don't get to understanding diversity, understanding different people's experiences. Wow, you um, go, Harvey. Being able to cope Just in the world powerful, and powerful. engage with people of all yeah. kinds of experiences, including yeah. yourself, your siblings, Absolutely. your children. Yeah. I think a sound well sex education sound and sex education diversity is part and parcel of a wholesome education i think uh that's so important Hasidic schools need a lot more sex education and a lot more experience with diversity like why are hasidic children just primarily mixing with other hasidic children they need to be mixing with lamad vavniks like javi weisberger and getting some sex education from this delightful young lady. The Hasidic community doesn't get to say that their children are above that or don't need access to that. Yeah, I mean, who on earth is going to say that Hasidic children, you know, are above getting sexually educated by Harvey Weisberger? I mean, they need to be exposed to that kind of sexual education, right? I mean... Why? Why do they get absolved from from the blessings of of wow? I mean, sex education from. I mean, just what a delightful young lady. I mean, you can get cynical doing a type of show that I'm doing, but sometimes, as I'm going through this fallen, uh, tawdry world, all right. Sometimes you just experience these these bursts of light like coming down from from a higher sphere like you get to you get to sense the transcendent you you get to sense the divine and we're living in Elul right now in the run up to Rosh Hashanah which starts Sunday night and so the the air is different there's just a whole different quality but but still sometimes i proceed along my mundane life without feeling the touch of the divine but then I get to hear such a powerful message from Harvey Weisberger, and like surely this was God speaking to us. I mean, surely I just, I just felt that that shot of transcendence that, that just lets me know there's there's a higher realm to aspire to. Wow, just I mean, what a what a beautiful, beautiful young woman, and I mean, are people setting her up right? I mean, surely she needs to get married and have kids as soon as possible. Uh, 
if, if she does not reproduce, we may not see her like again. So what are you doing to set up Harvey Weisberger with a good husband? 13 stab wounds is something, but just wait till 40 stabs you with your vulnerabilities based on your attachment style. <sighs> what is the equivalent of a saint in Judaism? Right, a saint is a is a sadik, but not not exactly a a saint. All right, who's removed from the world? A sadik is deeply enmeshed in the world. A sadik is married. A sadik has children. Uh, a sadik is is a righteous man, but uh, he's not otherworldly, like like the saint. Maybe there isn't a word in Yiddish. Yes, there is. It is a sadik. God forbid, Harvey Weisberger says, David is my rabbi's granddaughter who went off the derrick. She's a product of footsteps that recruits former Haredim to be interviewed for the New York Times. Wow. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on to a happier story here. So, Vanderbilt, right? Vanderbilt University, guys, opened its trans clinic in 2018. During a lecture in 2018, Dr. Shane Taylor explained how she convinced Nashville to get into the gender transition game. She emphasized that it's a big money maker, especially because the surgeries require a lot of follow-ups. So have you expended have you experienced gender affirming care? Like please share. This is a, a safe space for you to talk about your, your gender affirming care. But something I noticed, I've never known anyone to only have one back surgery. I have noticed just this is just my anecdotal experience that whenever someone has one back surgery, they always have multiple back and neck surgeries after that. So I've never heard of anyone just getting the, the one back surgery. I've never heard of anyone just getting the one operation of, of gender-affirming care. And what could be more healthy? What could be more promoting of wellness than some castration operation of gender-affirming care? But it, it never seems to end with just one. I never know people just to get one tattoo, one back operation, and one set of uh, gender-affirming care. But that's just my anecdotal experience. That's not peer-reviewed. Starting in January 1st of 2017, according to the Affordable Care Act, insurance cover carriers are mandated to cover medical expenses for trans folks. Um, some of our BUMC financial folks in... Thank God for Obamacare. Did you know that prior to Obamacare, health insurance companies were not required to pay for castration and other gender-affirming care? I mean, it's hard even to think back on what a dark ages we were living in prior to Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act. I mean, thanks to Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act, if you need to go to rehab, right, no matter your health insurance, that has to be covered. Right, so up to two thousand dollars a day, right, has to be covered. So we've got we've got rehabs all over Southern California, all over the United States. It's a great game. All right. You you bring people in, you guaranteed two thousand dollars a day, and they never get well. It's like when you go to a dermatologist, right? Dermatology, great profession, you get to keep regular hours, your, your patients never die and your patients never get well. So too most people who go to rehab. They never get well. They just keep coming back to rehab, and you get to tap into that $2,000 a day. I mean, what a wonderful moneymaker, right? Guaranteed $2,000 a day thanks to 
Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act. We got to transfer $2 trillion from productive citizens to non-productive citizens. And we got to subsidize gender-affirming care, such as castration, and all your opportunities you need to go to rehab. Well, that's guaranteed under the Affordable Care Act. $2,000 a day worth of care, and you're not going to get well, so you're just going to keep coming back to, to rehab. What, what a wonderful moneymaker. And gender-affirming care, big, big moneymaker thanks to the Affordable Care Act. I mean, what says affordable care more than subsidizing and paying for castration and mutilation of children? In, 20, in August of 20, I'm sorry, October of 2016, sorry, a couple of years ago, put down some costs of how much money we think each patient would bring in. And this is only including top surgery. This isn't including any bottom surgery. And wow. I mean, this is huge. I mean, think of all the money. Have you managed to get into this game? Have you managed to make money doing gender-affirming care? And she's just talking about the top surgery, not not the bottom surgery. And um, it's a lot of money. These surgeries make a lot of money. Uh, so female-to-male chest reconstruction can bring in $40,000. A patient just on routine hormone treatment, who I'm only seeing a few times a year, can bring in several thousand dollars that requires a lot of visits and labs and wow. actually makes money for the hospital. Now these I got from the internet, um, but it's from uh, the Philadelphia Center for Transgender Surgery, which has um, does a lot of um, surgery for patients. And I just want to give you an idea of how much these bottom surgeries are making. And this is, I think this has to be an underestimate. Uh, this is for a vaginoplasty. They're saying they're quoting roughly around $20,000 for a vaginoplasty, but that doesn't include your hospital stay. That doesn't include your post-op visits. That doesn't include... Um... There is so much money to be made castrating kids, guys. Think of all the money you could be making if, if you had a state license to mutilate children. This is amazing. Thank you, Dr. Shane Taylor. You really opened my, my eyes here your anesthesia, your OR. So I would think wow. that this has to be a gross underestimate. I think that's just like the surgeon's uh, piece of it, which anybody who's ever been in a hospital knows that that's like. Yeah, surgeons don't get to just hog all this money for themselves, right? That's just a piece of it. Hospitals make money. Nurses make money. The whole university systems make money, right? The elites make money. The medical establishment makes money. 10% of it. Uh, and then the female-to-male bottom surgeries, these are huge money makers. Again, I think this has to be an underestimate that they're quoting around $20,000 for a phalloplasty. There's been different things that I've read that said it could be up to $100,000. Um, Dr. Winokur, who's our surgeon, says that there's entire clinics where the entire clinic is supported just by their phalloplasties. And that is like a fraction of the surgeries that they're doing. These surgeries are labor intensive. They require a lot of follow-ups. They require a lot of OR time. Wow, that's powerful. I mean, this this is a wonderful person. Somehow she Vanderbilt's removed her page, but uh, luckily there's there's a a cache of of her page. So I should probably should probably uh, save it. Okay, let me do a print screen. Okay. I'll play some Michael Beckley while I say problems. This. China's going to have a shrinking working age population at the same time it has a mushrooming retirement age population. 
to a political system that has become increasingly hostile to the dictates of rapid growth, to the fact that the world just is not nearly as welcoming of China's rise as it once was. And so countries around the world, particularly advanced democracies, are taking more and more measures to protect their own economies from predatory Chinese practices and are becoming less welcoming of sort of the unfettered economic integration that was such a powerful stimulant to China's economic rise. Add all that to the fact that China has succeeded in alienating uh, the vast majority of advanced democracies around the world, not just in Asia, but also in, in Europe and, and in other places. And you're going to have a country that is facing... Uh... Okay, that's Hal Brands with Michael Beckley on the emerging conflict with China. But uh, let's go back to the lovely Shane Taylor. Okay, so that was a the speaker there. She's an assistant professor of medicine. I mean, look at those ratings, 4.9, right? And you're wondering, what are her areas of expertise aside from making money? Well, thank God she's handling adolescent LGBT health. Thank God someone this caring, this thoughtful, this compassionate is, is handling LGBT health. She's a specialist in contraception, internal medicine, pediatrics, adolescent and young adult health. There's no one I would rather have castrating and mutilating children than this woman. She focuses on general LGBT health, and they have a lot of health problems like monkeypox, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender health. So she doesn't just do general LGBT health. She also does lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender health. I mean, is there anything this woman can't do? And she also does transgender health. So many areas of expertise. I mean, look at these credentials. And love my doctor. She's so caring and very knowledgeable, credibly personable, helpful, shows a lot of empathy, right? Very attentive, listened to my concerns, made a thorough exam, made sure I was getting the referrals I needed for specialist care. She was amazing, thorough, incredibly compassionate. She knew all my issues with anxiety and dysphoria and prepared a list of alternatives if we needed them. Wow, is there, is there anything that this woman can't do? Dr. Taylor is fabulous. Great doctors give me excellent care. She's my favorite doctor. She clearly explains why I need certain labs and what they mean and what's going to happen with my medication. Love my doctor. So caring and knowledgeable. Just powerful, powerful, powerful. So Vanderbilt was concerned that not all of its staff would be on board. So it, it wanted to let you know there are serious consequences if uh, you object to the mutilation of children. Right, serious consequences. So we've got the wonderful Dr. Ellen Clayton warning that conscientious objections, all right, to mutilating and castrating children are problematic. Wow, is there anything worse than being problematic? Anyone who decides not to be involved in castrating and mutilating children due to religious beliefs will face consequences. Powerful. If you are going to assert conscientious objection, you have to th realize that that is problematic. Oh, yeah. You are doing something to another person, and you are not paying for the, the cost for your belief. I think that is a real, I mean, I think that's a real issue. So, um, 
So I think, you know, so you're, so yes, Vanderbilt, if someone has a conscientious objection to pers- uh, participating in this sort of surgery, it, it probably has to accommodate you to the extent that you can find another person who can do your job, who doesn't have an objection, other things of that nature. But I just want you to take home that saying that you're not going to do something because of your conscientious, because of your religious beliefs is not without consequences. And, and it should not be without consequences. And I just want to put that out there. We are given enormous, if you don't want to do this kind of work, don't work at Vanderbilt. Powerful, powerful. If you're not into castrating children, guys, do not work at Vanderbilt. Right? If you are not into mutilating kids, don't work at Vanderbilt. If you're not into destroying children's lives, don't work at Vanderbilt. If you're not into turning the world upside down, ruining kids, destroying children, mutilating children, castrating children, if you're not into that, then don't work at Vanderbilt. Because think of all the monies that's that's to be made. I mean, are you going to let a little thing like some kind of outdated medieval religious objection get in the way of Vanderbilt reaping big money from gender-affirming care. And one of the great things about gender-affirming care is all the follow-up visits that it always necessitates. I mean, you're on a gravy train, right? We're talking big bucks here, people. Don't don't talk to me about morality or or religion when, when there's money to be made. Powerful, powerful words. Okay, Vanderbilt's got a wonderful program called Trans Buddies. This is beautiful. For Trans Buddy, the program. Oh yeah, I'm digging this music. My name is Sean Riley, and I'm the program coordinator for Trans Buddy at the program for LGBTQ health at Vanderbilt University. Trans Buddy provides trained peer advocates for transgender patients who are coming for doctor's appointments or other healthcare related services. Whether you're looking for something that's related to medical transition, such as hormone therapy, or something completely unrelated, like breaking an arm or going to an ENT, we are here here to help support any transgender patients that come through our doors. The TransBuddy program was organically created through the efforts of transgender people and continues to consistently be led by trans people in Middle Tennessee. TransBuddy program is a one of a kind in the nation and institutions are looking to Vanderbilt to replicate and expand programs like ours. We're not seeking to find solutions often for people's problems. We're just seeking to be there and to accompany and to be a friendly face um, and to be a non-medical face in a, in a place where everybody coming in the room is going to be a healthcare provider and and may be unsafe. Sometimes I'm there to be um, sort of uh, always observing kind of how hospital staff are um, interacting with the individuals and again you know using correct pronouns or treating the individual with respect. Oh man this is this is really good news. So Vanderbilt makes their trans buddies available to children. They make lots of these services available to children including chemical castration. But for some reason, they removed explicit admission of this fact from their website. But they must have forgotten to delete a video from Vanderbilt's psychiatry's YouTube channel back in 2020 
which admits explicitly they will give and have given irreversible hormone drugs to children as young as 13. We can provide gender-affirming hormones on an individual who is on a pubertal blocker, depending on whatever kind of blocker they've chosen or we have discussed with them, or they can present to us at a later stage of puberty, and then we provide the gender-affirming hormones. Previously, the Endocrine Society recommended to start these at age 16, but we all know that would be delayed puberty, right? Not 16-year-olds don't start puberty. So more recently, they did update that to say as early as 14 for compelling reasons. So we have some individuals who have started gender-affirming hormones at 13 or 14 to be more like their peers. Again, fertility preservation and consent are very important to discuss prior to any initiation of these. We can provide gender-affirming hormones on an and they have drugged and sterilized the kids, right? Vanderbilt, in a video presentation here by plastic surgeon Julian Winokur and physician's assistant Shailen Vanderbloom, they will happily perform double mastectomies on adolescent girls. Great. The great WPATH guys. guidelines for the most. Thank you. So when we when we talk about the WPATH guidelines, so in order for our patients to really um, successfully undergo these surgeries, we do, uh, again, follow these guidelines. So a lot of times it's for insurance purposes, um, but we, again, insurances kind of follow suit with the WPATH guidelines for the most part. So for any kind of top surgery, uh, we do require one letter of persistent, well-documented gender dysphoria by a licensed mental health provider. Um, we ensure that the patient is capable of making uh, fully informed decisions on the, their own. They're the age of majority. However, for a lot of our younger patients, um, again, if they are 16, 17 here at Vanderbilt, um, if they have been on testosterone, have a parental consent, um, we're able to do a lot of the top surgeries for those patients. So when we, when we talk about the WPATH guidelines, so in order for our patients to really um, successfully undergo these surgeries, we... So Vanderbilt gets into the gender transition game because it's financially very profitable. They then threatened any staff members who objected, and they enlisted a gang of trans activists to act as surveillance to force compliance. They now castrate, sterilize, and mutilate minors as well as adults while taking steps to hide this activity from the public view. This is what uh, healthcare has become in America. Whoa. Heavy, heavy story. All right, let's have a look at the chat. Hasidim or Hasidic, is there any difference between the Hasidim and the general Orthodox? Yes, the Hasidim, uh, one way of understanding it, it's like the peasants of Orthodox Judaism. That, so they tend not to have the education of other Orthodox Jews. They, generally speaking, have an approach to Judaism that is less intellectual and more embodied. Right, so it's more about uh, joy and, and feelings in most forms of ascetic Judaism outside of Lubavitch uh, compared to other forms of Orthodox Judaism. There are about 400,000 Hasidic Jews in the world, about 200,000 in and around New York City. These hormones they put the kids on are really bad for their heart. They often have bad hearts, end up with heart problems at a young age. The vast majority of people are incapable of effectively competing, so what do we do the, with them? Is this why we drug and mutilate them to make them more competitive? Okay, I was just uh, reading an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's going to blow you away. So the gospel of wellness, right? The quest for a new you. 
So Yoni Eggs. Uh, any of you into Yoni Eggs? Therapeutic crystals? detox drinks, mystical services, takes a lot to maximize personal excellence and achieve well-being. So what are you doing in your quest for a new you? What are you doing, all right, for your wellness? So there's a new book out by Rena Raphael, The Gospel of Wellness, right? It's a critique of this $4.4 trillion business. It's an aspirational obsession for some close to religion for others. So are you doing your turmeric tablets, your charcoal-activated toothpaste, your acupuncture, your fertility treatments, your detox drinks, mindfulness apps, athlete leisure wear, all right? All these goods and services come with the promise of maximizing personal excellence, delaying aging, and maybe even postponing death. So these movements have changed the way we talk. Like now we say, I need this for my self-care. I'm on a cleanse. I'm... I'm practicing gratitude. These slogans went around 15 years ago. So why is it that women are the ones who are primarily into wellness, particularly middle-class and upper-class women? So apparently women make up about 80% of all decisions having to do with health. So they wield a tremendous economic power. And women are apparently highly receptive to the allurement of wellness marketing. Why could that be? Just boggles my mind. I just can't think why. Well, it turns out that advertisers have this crazy idea that women are subject to greater emotionality and inarticulate longings. I mean, wow. Talk about Madison Avenue chauvinism. How on earth do marketers come up with the idea that women are subject to greater emotionality and inarticulate longings? So why... Are women such easy marks for foolishness? Like why are women the primary customers for ecstatic spin classes and cannabis-infused wellness weekends? Why are women buying jade yoni eggs, therapeutic crystals, and chemical-free beauty products, which are composed of the same chemical compounds, along with everything else in life? So why are modern women possessed of such intense emotions and inarticulate longings? Why are women so attached to their Instagram and its beguiling targeted ads for wellness products? The, the same, same Instagram and social media that simultaneously feeds women's social anxieties. So why are so many millions of American women spending trillions of dollars on wellness? Maybe it has to do with seeking comfort and refreshment that uh, used to be satisfied in organized religion. So two decades ago, apparently 70% of Americans belonged to a church, mosque, or synagogue. Today, it's fewer than half. During that same period, demand has soared in the wellness industry for mystical services, tarot card readings, psychic readings, and astrology. So wellness is bespoke. That means it is directed at you, the individual. All right, You get some personalized attention with wellness care. And so this will feed your narcissism and uh, maybe solve your need for comfort and meaning. Or maybe not. So when a family member dies, do crystals offer a communal ritual and a way to soothe collective grease or solidify memorial rites? So the author went to an expensive wellness weekend in Utah. Three people there inquired about her meditation practice. And the author said she didn't meditate. She instead centered herself by reading traditional Jewish prayers. She was met with bewildered embarrassment.
Really don't know what to say to that, one fellow managed. That's different. So why are American women so credulous, spending trillions of dollars on rot? Right? These wellness products are not necessarily safer or nicer because they're natural. They may just rot faster. Many of these vilified toxins represent no threat to health. No woman or man needs gluten-free shampoo. So David Foster Wallace noticed, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. Right? Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. When time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. I dated a beautiful woman, and she was smart. She was outgoing. She had many wonderful qualities. She had a lot of things to base her self-esteem on. I was just curious. How much of your self-esteem do you get from your looks? She said, 100%. 100%. Wow. Okay, let's get a little bit more here from uh, Tucker Carlson. In the show tonight, the people who claim to be the best are often in real life the worst, and the people who actually do a pretty good job, you are told, are evil. Carrie Lake could win. Looks like she's going to win in Arizona, for example. They're, she's not even allowed on TV. She's so bad. So they tell you someone's terrible. Maybe the person is terrible. Maybe you should look carefully and make up your own mind. Anyway, that's, a, that's a fascinating interview with Monica Crowley. It's out right now. You can stream it on Fox Nation. So something called ESG is basically determining where your money is going. It determines investment strategies. So woke corporate investors take your money, whether it's in a pension fund or even just you hand it over, and then they invest in places with high ESG scores. And they do this not just with companies, but with countries. So places like Sri Lanka and the Netherlands followed ESG guidelines and got in huge trouble and had massive political disruption as a result. So what do you do about this? Well, Vivek Ramaswamy has spent his life in finance and been really successful in that. And he's got a brand new idea to slow this down. He's using his stakes in Disney and Apple to awaken the population to how terrible ESG is. Vivek Ramaswamy is also an author. He wrote the book, Nation of Victims, which is excellent. And he runs Drive Asset Management. He joins us tonight. Vivek, thanks so much for coming on. So how does the, this is one of these trends that's so clearly bad for the country and for individuals, but no one can do anything to slow it down. Tell us what you're doing. Sure. And the problem is. Okay. Uh, David, what's, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, Brooker Shem. See you again. Yeah. So uh, pretty horrifying story of those professors at Vanderbilt University boasting about how much money comes from what they call gender affirming care, which is really the, the mutilation and castration of children. Yeah, I mean, God forbid Charles Moskowitz likes to talk and focus on that quite a bit. Um, but I mean, even liberals and Democrats operate in the capitalistic world. So you know, there's a difference between messaging, winning elections, propaganda, and practicality. And practicality is still money and budgets. And, uh, and she's probably right that, uh, you know, financially, it's a good thing to make people dependent to get them hooked on, uh, you know, something like medical care, one of the big, biggest businesses. And then if you get insurance to cover it, um, and you could uh, get the government to uh, mandate uh, anti-discrimination 
um, you know, God forbid it's good for business. Yeah. And uh, there was a question in the chat yesterday about whether we would take a job uh, for Uber Eats delivering non-kosher food. Can, can a Jew do something like that? Now, I would never want to take such a job as like the, the lowest of the, the low. I mean, you use your own car, you, you get paid minimally. It's you're just racking up uh, mileage on, on your car. Uh, but uh, can, can a, a Jew, according to Jewish law, make money delivering non-kosher food? Yes, I think you can. Um, there's you know, a few caveats, like if uh, you shouldn't be selling non-kosher food to Jews, and I think pork, chazer, uh, you're not supposed to derive benefit from. So pork specifically, there's prohibitions that uh, you should avoid. Uh, but if it's not pork, um, you're allowed to uh, feed non-kosher food to non-Jews and uh, make money off of it. Um, I had the case when I was first becoming religious in University of Michigan, and I worked in uh, the restaurant in the dormitory serving uh, non-kosher food. There were quite a few Jews in the cafeteria, but I remember asking that question. Um, but it would definitely be bitty of it. So After the you fact. Know, you need to well, it's like the best situation. We're saying if that's the only job available, if you had other other jobs, um, but uh, you know, there's a lot of exceptions for you know. You know, we've been talking about this many times uh, related to uh, you know uh, safety and getting ahead in business, and you could violate basically any law besides the big three uh, in order to uh, you know save your life or, or have safety. And you could violate the majority of Jewish laws um, or, or find loopholes or um, you'll be less stringent in order to get ahead in business. So if you're, uh, you literally need to eat, you could eat, you could eat non-kosher food yourself. And, you know, certainly if it's only job available, uh, but, you know, generally if you're, uh, you're not a Baltruva or you're not in some predicament that you wouldn't see too many Jews working in those type jobs. Orthodox Jews. Right. And so there's not just Jewish law on the books. There's also what what are the norms of your community? So there are plenty of Orthodox communities where you would not want to have a job, you know, delivering non-kosher food for Uber Eats. A, a community is not just based on laws in books. It's also based on expected norms of behavior that aren't necessarily written down. Uber Eats could also be a little bit more interesting because you may not know what the food is. So if it's like Uber Eats, like Uber, you just get um, your know, message, like pick up this food and drop it off to this person. And you don't even know what the order is. You just know that you have a delivery. And so it could make it to a you know, little bit like secondhand. Like if you had a shipping business, can you ship tray things? And uh, and then there's also, um, you know, like the Dini Malchus Dina, the laws of the nation we live in, where you're not allowed to discriminate, just like, uh, you know, the transgender and these things, various things of getting ahead in America, that's American law. Um, in fact, Alan Dershowitz was on Zeb Brenner talking about that. But I mean, so if you are an Uber Eats delivery and you figure the vast majority of it is 
being delivered to non-Jews, um, and you have limited culpability because you don't actually know. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Like, I mean, th thank God. Um, you know, Uber for a while was a good profession, especially if you could do it uh, off hours. It got a little bit more dangerous, um, and I think the you know gas prices have went up. Uh, but uh, you know, so if if you could make like fifteen twenty dollars an hour doing uh, Uber delivery, you know, as compared to uh, less money in other sources, you might be able to get some sort of rabbinic uh, leniency, especially considering that you don't actually know. I believe you don't actually know what's in the order. Right. Uh, so I was rereading this book by Yoni Goodman on conservative oppression, and he had some interesting comments on the whole transgender thing. So he says, conservatives are inclined to deny the right of the transgendered individual, say a biological male who self-identifies as a female, to access public restrooms designated for the opposite biological sex. And liberals typically dismiss this opposition as just another narrow bigotry. But conservatives' opposition need not rest on bigotry. They could make the following argument. A biological male is within his rights to self-identify as a female and assign this self-conception preeminence over his biological status. But it is unreasonable for the transgendered individual to expect that others, for whom any such disjunction between his biology and identity is entirely foreign, do the same and recognize him as a female. His sexual self-identification is an individual matter, but his biological sexuality is a public matter, and others have a right to respond to what they can see and hear. So I assume you would hold with the conservative perspective on this. Yeah, I'm kind of libertarian, and, and I think it was what you know, I, I was referring to generally the white strategy of, uh, you know, Hasidim or even, you know, God forbid, Jews in general or minorities is, you know, try to uh, not let them move into your neighborhood. And if they eventually move into your neighborhood um, to seed and white flight and, uh, you know, move, move away. And, you know, so I think, you know, conservatives largely have a live or let, uh, you know, live in that live attitude where they're not necessarily trying to enforce these things on other people uh, but uh, they don't want it around them they want to have their own private clubs and places where this behavior is frowned upon and then when you start making changes that make people feel uncomfortable like you know public bathrooms or uh, sports and, and where it's like now it's all of a sudden in your face like, you know, the old conservative uh, don't ask, don't tell uh, compromise that, uh, you know, once it got past that, that the conservatives, uh, you can't, you can't really have a conservative society anymore. And you, you conservatives, I think, like to think that we're normal. And, you know, so at a certain point in the culture war, the fact is, is we're, at least democratically, we're the ones who are abnormal. And, uh, you know, so it makes for interesting politics. That's what I meant, like, socially, where it's like, well, can we still gather and think what we like and uh, self, uh, you know, choose to uh, who we're going to associate with? And so, you know, a certain level of culture where it's like, no, you can't have a space where you choose to only be around people who oppose this uh, type of lifestyle and 
the amount of public space or it'll affect the bottom line of how you could get ahead to the point like, you know, like Haredim is the extreme example of you can't even speak English or get a secular education. But for conservatives that uh, you can't really go to a good school anymore, that, uh, you know, like University of Michigan or something, you know, maybe they used to have, uh, you know, liberal bent, but you could still have a conservative fraternity and, uh, you know, we have your little thing and uh, just be a little question of what you say in class and what views you express uh, publicly, but you'd still have your, you know, group of uh, conservative like-minded people that you could uh, congregate with and get ahead. And now that's basically been taken away where, uh, you know, you can't really have a fraternity that's going to reject these people that, that, you know, someone's going to try to get into your club and they'll successfully do it. And there's going to be censors and they're going to find out that, uh, you know, not just that you kept your, uh, your head down and were careful what you said in public, but they're going to find out what you say in private and then that's going to affect you. So uh, you could still be conservative, but, uh, you know, God forbid the price of losing the culture wars is, uh, you know, has consequences. Yeah, back to Ronnie Goodman and his work here on conservative oppression. So he says the conservative perspective is that for the trans individual, there is a social consensus that sexes should be provided with separate restrooms and the trans individual is in the minority. Resources that can be expended on public restrooms are finite. Someone is going to be made to feel uncomfortable. So it's the greatest good or the greatest number that determines who this will be. And it's not the primary purpose of public restrooms to serve as forums for authentic self-expression. Now, liberals will dismiss this utilitarian calculus as just narrow prejudice because they see conservatives and their resistance to transgendered rights reflecting their failure to rise above the purely human emotions, to rise above the natural equation of biological sexuality and ultimate identity. So liberalism is a believer in a buffered identity that individuals can be autonomous and strategic and choose to rise above their folkways and religions and prejudices. So from a liberal perspective, conservative preferences cannot be entered into a utilitarian calculus because these preferences reflect a failure of virtue, a failure of discipline, failure to resist the reflexive common sense, the unacknowledged teleological libertinism that uh, perceives some deep meaning in human anatomy. So liberals characterize conservatives as prejudiced. They see conservatives as failing to enjoy the benefits of enlightenment, that they are driven by, you know, irrational animus, that they fail to transcend, you know, ordinary perceptions and instead move toward a higher state of spiritual purity and freedom like the liberals. They they fail to embrace the kind of emotional asceticism that would facilitate this transcendence. So what liberals present as mere opposition to prejudice is in fact their old love of their positive promotion of a spiritualized ascetic ideal opposition to which must be socially defined as prejudice. And these social definitions then become self-fulfilling prophecies. So what conservative sense here is that the liberal leftist is imposing their hero system that will predictably spawn resentment toward the transgendered individual through whom this imposition is being implemented. And so what was originally liberals deceptive and self-deceptive histrionic mimicry of a detached non-sectarianism of being buffered and above it all becomes socially vindicated as a genuine article of 
opposition to prejudice because the liberal left transgendered movement has created much of the irrational hatred to which it can then define itself. So for people on the right, the greatest problems that we face are contagion and disorder. For people on the left, the greatest problems that we face are ignorance and prejudice. So any thoughts, David? Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with his assessment on the you know, root of the problem. I think it's more just demographics that change, like, you know, just like racism, um, you know, African-Americans, Jews, um, you know, were at a certain point, you can't mistreat people and you have to accept these people. And also you can't segregate yourself. So then it came across all of America that, uh, you know, desegregation, that segregation was wrong and, uh, you know, basically criminalized all across America in, in the 60s. And so, you know, now 50 plus years later, basically every place in America has been um, desegregated. There's, you know, there's minorities, Jews, African-Americans of various sorts everywhere that, uh, you know, there might be rural places that are still majority white, uh, but th there basically are no more um, WASP clubs. They don't exist anymore. All of them to some extent have been integrated and when homosexuality rose you know already in the obama era that you know they completely got rid of the don't ask don't tell and then it became across across america federal law that you can't discriminate against homosexuals so every town and village you know there's a homosexual and now you can't discriminate against them so you can't really you know, by law, have a place in America where you don't allow homosexuals uh, because it's illegal. And so the same thing has happened uh, with trans, where, where it's been accepted, and then it's became illegal to persecute in the way of segregation, that if there happens to be one of these people in your area, you have to um, make, a, make a means and uh, accommodate them without uh, discrimination, and that could include bathrooms and sports. And because it's federal law, that means everywhere across America and basically every town and village. So like Jews haven't came to every town and village because, you know, Jews mostly live in urban areas. Blacks, um, you know, blacks have uh, came to more parts of America than Jews, but homosexuals um, arise from all sorts of people. So, you know, basically every small town has a gay in it. And uh, and now transsexuals. So I'm not sure. If, I mean, I agree with what what uh, Ronnie's saying, but but I think that he's. I, I would just put it more at the uh, demographic change, and like we live in a democracy, so we're still conservative. Uh, but uh, it sucks to be a minority, and we're conservative, and we're in the minority, and uh, and you know. So he seems to be phrasing it. I'm not sure. Maybe he's not phrasing it that way. But it's saying, okay, we lost the majority, and this is the consequence of that, is that uh, we can't uh, end America segregation is is, uh, is illegal, and you're not allowed to segregate yourself from any of these protected classes. Right. Well, he, Ronnie Goodman is a man of the left. He's just articulating 
how conservatives view the world and and pointing out that the the ground on which conservatives and liberals are arguing in America is is tilted. So he quotes here a because well, he's avoiding the main issue that I think the alt right focused on that he's still like writing in pre alt right terms of immigration and demographics that it wasn't like there was a theological or a political debate. The demographics changed and now conservatives are in the minority and it, it sucks to be a minority. And so this is the natural consequence. It wasn't, you know, due to like, uh, um, you know, it was largely just due to the demographic changes and, and the demographic changes have only, you know, are only getting started. Right. But the, the demographic changes are not uh, dominating our, our universities. These, these, Institutions have been dominated by by the left for for many decades, and they, they've done it without uh, demographic changes. It's the, well, with uh, Obama that I'm saying there's demographic like in university where it used to be, like you're saying, like University of Michigan. Up till 15 years ago, you could have you know just bore the leftist indoctrination and uh, um, you know professors and everything, but still had your conservative fraternity. And you know, made racist jokes among your, uh, you know, cohorts until Obama got elected, and changed the federal law, where now you can't really have a fraternity that excludes gays. So at this point, you know, basically every conservative fraternity now has a gay in it, and uh, you know, so I think that uh, it will happen with the politics. Like, there's conservative in terms of how we live, then there's the political battle. And the cultural wars, to say that conservatives lost the cultural wars, we could still be conservative, but now we have to learn how to uh, you, you survive as a minority. Right. So you're, you're talking about tactics on the ground. And uh, Ronnie Goodman's a philosopher, has got a PhD in philosophy, is talking about the philosophy behind these two different ways of viewing the world. And there's a quote here from liberal historian Rick Polstein. Knows, liberalism is rooted in the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment has this, I think, unempirical, you know, bizarre notion that the human nature is basically good. I mean, just the craziest idea. People on the left, generally speaking, view human nature as basically good, and therefore we just need to get out of the way and stop oppressing people and subsidize people and provide them with social welfare spending so that their natural goodness can just overflow. The non-leftist position is that human beings are deeply flawed, and in Christian terms, that human beings are fallen. But liberalism rooted in the Enlightenment, the notion that people are basically good, the idea that we can use our reason because we're basically good, therefore we could use our reason and we can use the tools of our reason to just sort out facts and use this scientific method to arrive at a consensus view of what the truth is, right? So that's the left-wing position on what is true, that we can use our reason to arrive there. The right-wing view of truth is much more based in identity, on intuition, on tradition, on tribe, and on narrative or a myth. So within the academy and within the elites and within the canons of expertise, within the canons of professionalism, the right-wing traditional approach has been overwhelmingly superseded by a more empirical enlightenment-based history, which is kind of absurd to call 
something empirical enlightenment-based history because enlightenment is based upon this notion that human beings are basically good, which seems like the least empirical perspective in all the world. I mean, how on earth anyone can claim that they're empirical and also hold that people are basically good just uh, blows my mind. I, I can't think of any empirical basis for holding that people are basically good. Anything there you want to comment on, David? Yeah, and I, I, I disagree with his assessment that, uh, um, you know, liberal, that, that that's a division. I mean, you probably have idealists on both sides, and, you know, it's an ancient debate. Base Hill and Base Shammai have the debate, if you're familiar with the Gomorrah and Erevin, says that uh, Base Hill and Base Shammai argued for two and a half years whether it would have been better for God to have not created man. And after two and a half years, Base Hill, uh, you know, the, the, the study, the students of uh, the Academy of Hillel agreed to Shammai that, that uh, it would have been better had God created man. And essentially that, uh, you know, Hillel, the more idealist school that thinks man is inherently good, agreed to Shammai that they were wrong and that man is not inherently good. Um, you know, and then, the, you know, the Gomorrah says, well, since we're here, try your best and introspect. Uh, Confucius, his two disciples, Mencius and Lent, uh, Lao Tzu, have the same, uh, di you know, division of schools of whether man is inherently good or bad. And I, I don't think that's his assessment is accurate. You might have a, a larger amount of conservatives than liberals, but I, I, I would highly suspect that both schools are present on both sides and and the evidence. Wait, um, wait, both schools are present on both sides of what? Conservatism and liberalism of whether man is inherently good or bad, that uh, both uh, schools... Which, which, which thinkers on the left hold that uh, man is, is uh, not inherently good? Um, well, I mean, it's part of the, probably part of the critical race theory and, uh, structural racism and, uh, a lot of aspects of, uh, of governmental control that we need to be disciplined by the government, uh, in order to break our natural inclination, uh, like charity, you know, on the right to think charity is the place of the government, uh, man without the regulation of the government, we would be more charitable. Churches would have homeless people and feed them. And liberals, they're like, no, if uh, the government doesn't force you to, uh, um, you know, to tax the money out of you, you're not going to help the poor people. I think economically, you could, uh, you could put certain elements of conservative and liberal policy on both sides. Maybe in terms of crime and punishment, conservatives are more likely to think you can't name any. I mean, you're 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 saying well, so economically you, in terms of charity. No, you can't name any left-wing thinker who holds that people are not basically good. You can't name one. I mean, you can generalize and, and hope that uh, maybe in critical race theory that there's there's uh, grounds there for holding that people are not basically good. But it is telling you cannot name one left-wing thinker who believes that people are not basically good. I don't know that I've heard any of them say that. That left-wing thinkers intrinsically think um, people are good. I'm not. I'm not uh, sure that that's. Uh... You can't name one who holds that people are inherently fallen or with strong tendencies towards evil. I mean, I, I think that's telling. Well, I, mean, I, I would assume that uh, you know, like Hillary Clinton, if she has a Methodist or 
you know, that, that a lot of the Christians that would have some original sin doctrine on the left, I didn't research like uh, to, uh, you know, make a list or to look it up beforehand, but I, I would assume that a lot of uh, the Christians on the left uh, would hold some sort of uh, original sin uh, you know, but you can't name any. I mean, you assume this. Because I didn't research. I just off no. my hand. I didn't, uh, you know, like... Uh, You're not going to find any. I mean, I'll tell you that right now. I mean, you can you can prove me wrong after the show. If you feel like it, you can go research it. But you're not going to find any important thinker on the left who does not hold with people being basically good. But uh, um, before before I move on, anything else that uh, you've been thinking about since you're on the show last? Anything come up in your reading or in your listening to podcasts? Yeah, I, I yeah, I appreciate you you uh, turned me on to the new book on the history of YouTube. So uh, I'm going to start looking at that. Um, you know, I was thinking about your your voice lessons, and uh, you know, it's pretty important. And and think like. Uh, you know, God forbid that Matt, uh, the you interviewed him on your show, the um, the guy who's getting a PhD in London, who's been debating historical revisionists, um, on, you know, on the on the Holocaust, and he was doing a a show today, and a lot of people on YouTube, it, it's saying it's theatrics, it's public speaking, and there's a certain element uh, of theatrics and then there's a certain element of content and it's on clearly so if you're like into broadcasting so i mean it's an important topic i found that interesting in terms of self uh improvement and and you know if, you, if we are trying to get ahead on youtube um certain elements that would uh you just improve delivery voice lessons theatrics so it's an interesting to uh to think about and then compare you know, various people and you know a lot of good people um and it's unclear also like if uh depressed like i noticed that i watch a lot of intellectual content university um and they're pretty monotone and depressed you know most uh university departments think tanks even like brookings or the more popular one some of the you know the, the authors or people have done radio or, or have a background in theatrics so it's unclear whether you're saying it's good, you, if it's a skill to say, I should have acquired this skill, and I see why people who you know had a background in drama or singing are excelling in uh, this field as, a, as opposed to people who uh, didn't versus the level of the content and say, like, no, I'm just interested in content, and therefore, you know, like, I prefer Greg Johnson to Richard Spencer if you're in that genre, or I prefer, uh, you know, Brookings or uh, uh, university uh, departments of history to, uh, you know, to newscasters. So I can't really find Tucker. I, I have a hard time watching him because the content level or the, I don't know, it's, just, it's not high, high IQ enough for me, the level of the arguments and the information being given over, but just to focus on, yeah, like he's a star. He did the hard work that uh you know i haven't done that uh, most people haven't done on uh you, you know delivery and performance level so i thought that was a really great show i appreciate it oh thanks and uh, let me just ask you an another question so when i do a show as opposed to just having a conversation in real life doing a show takes about 10 times as much energy 
as I would bring to a regular off-air conversation. How about for you? Yeah, because it's performative. So if it was intellectual, just like talking about a subject I know very well, um, sometimes if you're excited, you 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 naturally have a performative spirit, like you mentioned, like Adam Green or something, because he's really passionate about the topic, even if he doesn't have training in uh, you know media or performative arts. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, I think it's it's draining because it's performative. There might be other reasons to it. Uh, also and uh yeah definitely like uh you're like maybe i'm getting a little older uh you know i used to stay up later streaming in uh i've been going to sleep earlier and uh my my desire to do it has decreased i think also the world has taken a turn for the worst direction the world you know the war in ukraine and uh um economic uh, decline that the world's taken uglier turn and people are more uh harsh and ready for conflict and that's also much more uh you know draining that you know i was mentioned to jennifer you know positive feedback is good and uh when you don't get positive feedback um you know i think positive feedback is energizing and so it's draining to uh you know to put a performance to have uh you know constantly god forbid i've had some of the same names some you know like uh just people that are negative on me for years. And it's almost even like half of my own audience on my own channel. God forbid, but like we can review even your chat. You can be like, like, man, this is tough. Like, like it's, it's a tough crowd. And uh, half the audience, like, you know, still doesn't like me years later. Like they're not going to cut me a break. And I could see like that, like, you know, if you're a stand up comedian and uh, you're not funny, they're going to boo you off stage and streamings like that also is like I'm not being entertained. You know, kick him, Luke. He's not entertainment enough. Kick him, and uh, you, you know. So that's draining. And also, if you're doing your show where people are just like, Luke, you're not interesting enough. I'm going to view somebody else, and you know. So it's a constant uh, pressure, and you know, hopefully. But I think if you had positive feedback, it might be energizing in the same way that uh, you know negative feedback or uh, you're just difficulty producing the results is draining. Yeah, I I understand that. So you have to get on the same page with, with people and pr provide something that they enjoy and you enjoy and so that you're creating a shared reality unless you're getting that connection, right? Even, even virtual connection, then it, it's hard to find the energy to do this. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're in Hollywood. You can't guarantee you're going to be a star just like a comedian. He's like, I, want, I thought I'd be funny, but like, no, I just wasn't. So streaming also... Um, that there, you know, there's things beyond our control. You could do everything right, take the voice lessons, have all the training. It is like people don't like me. You're like I'm not a star. So uh, you know, there's a certain uh, um, you know, like divine will or, or amount beyond beyond our control. That uh, you know, to that. Right, and you, you're not going to be effective in life if you're not connecting with people, whether it's on YouTube or in in real life. YouTube, the internet for me is not separate and apart from real life. The internet is part of real life. And if you're not connecting with people in real life, uh, that's going to be incredibly draining too. 
So I was just walking down the street and I ran into a friend and she had a friend there. And so the three of us had, had a nice conversation. We, we got on the same page. We, we created a shared reality. And so I got energy from that interaction. And similarly, if I come on here and I'm not able to connect with, with anyone, then that that is, is not going to be particularly energizing, particularly if I'm just like battling the, the chat or, or through the, the show. On the other hand, there are things that I believe in strongly enough that energize me that I have the inner strength to power through shows where I'm in opposition to everyone on the chat. Okay, any any other final words for this evening, David? Yeah, I'll let you move on. I think you know, what we were talking about with Elliot um, might be interesting to return to, like entourages and the more successful people, you need an entourage and you need to keep the people in your entourage satisfied and uh, you'll be attuned to their needs and uh, you're like uh, group strategy and uh, you know what me and Elliot, uh, you know, like basic strategy, make yourself useful and always acquiring more skills is definitely, uh, you know, saying voice training or anything you could do in terms you know, like health, physical appearance, uh, working out, um, you know, better content, uh, learning, reading more books, any of the things that we could do to make ourselves more useful is, uh, you, you know, good use of our time. Okay, David. Thanks, man. Talk to you later. Okay. Looking at the chat, success is connecting with 27 people. So we have uh, 27 live viewers right now. Success is connecting with one person, right? You connect with one person, you will start to fill up, right? That's an incredibly powerful experience connecting with one person over the phone, over Skype, over a YouTube live stream, over creating a piece of art that somebody connects with and then lets you know, or just having a conversation in synagogue or going on a date or marrying someone. Yeah, connecting with one person will fill you up, right? It, you don't need 27 people. Uh, connecting with you and getting on the same page. So yes, I just read a book, brand new book on the history of YouTube. So it's called Like, Comment, Subscribe, How YouTube Conquered the World. And so early on, I think 2005, there was an annoyed viewer caught into YouTube's office line, left a voicemail. I need to damn masturbate. And I can't do that when you don't have all those videos up. He shouted into the phone, get your stuff together, you damn whores. So early YouTube got a lot of requests from German officials. So Germany had strict laws against displaying Nazi imagery, but YouTube, which had no office in Germany, did not have to comply. So the placard read, do not appease the Germans. Uh, after two weeks on the job, YouTube's first full-time lawyer got a request from PETA, the animal rights group. They, they demanded that YouTube remove a video of a truck running over a fish. So one of YouTube's early challenges was motivating people to upload. I remember I started uploading to YouTube in 2007. I went out and bought a camera, video camera for something close to $1,000. And I started uploading a lot of my content to Rever because I could make money with it. But uh, I started uploading all my content to Rever and then Rever went broke and didn't pay out. So Google, as you would expect, and YouTube have been on the left for as long as they've been in existence. So Google's very much into purchasing solar panels. 
and they would have Friday gatherings to recite and reinforce their values, just like Muslims, Jews, and Christians. So during one, thank God it's Friday gathering, Al Gore dialed in on the day he'd been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his environmental work. And Sergey Brin says, I heard you won something today. We all feel grateful to you. And the Googlers just erupted in applause. Yay, Al Gore. So much of Google's political identity was formed in opposition to the Machiavellian moralism of the Bush-Cheney era. So Google was able to just position themselves as, hey, we don't do evil. We're just searching the web. But this became trickier in 2003. Google bought Blogger. And uh, Blogger was manageable. So lawyers could, could read the written text fairly quickly. And Google's lawyers developed a system to track legal risks according to nationalities who use Blogger. Then YouTube came along. Google bought YouTube and that mucked it up. So this sprawling video site made internet governance nearly impossible as it expanded across the globe. So suddenly you have Greek soccer fans making videos mocking the founder of modern Turkey to taunt their hostile neighbors. So there's a law professor at Columbia University, Tim Wu, who offered this formulation on Google rising to power as the primary gatekeeper and moderator of speech around the world. To love Google, you have to be a monarchist. You have to have faith in the way people traditionally felt about the king. To love Google, you have to be a monarchist. All right, that was, that was an idea I hadn't heard before. There's not a lot that's new in this book, but that's a new idea. And that's an interesting thought. Google is the primary speech gatekeeper in the world. But is Google really the boss of what we can say publicly on social media? I don't think Google is the boss. The situation's the boss because Google is primarily a business that trades getting your attention for advertising dollars. So whatever Google does is overwhelmingly decided by those with the money to buy advertising. So I don't think it's a matter that just in the abstract, Google imposes their, their left-wing agenda on speech codes on, on the rest of us. If, if it wasn't Google, all right, some other social media company would have very similar speech codes. Now, Facebook is much more permissive than Google. Right, you can talk much more about uh, election fraud and problems with COVID vaccines on Facebook than you can on YouTube or Twitter. But generally speaking, all these social media platforms are primarily funded by advertising. So in the end, the situation that advertisers are paying for eyeballs and advertisers are going to decide what kind of speech they are willing to monetize. Forty, what's your blogspot, bro? It is yourmoralleader.blogspot.com. Sarah says, David, I miss your live channel productions, the long discussion ones. You rarely do them anymore. Uh, reasonable Responsible says, looks like someone is impersonating Duvid. I don't think so. Duvid says, thanks. Not enough positive feedback, but I've been thinking to stream more regularly, maybe after the holiday seasons. 
So yes, always a lot easier to live stream or do anything that requires energy if you're getting positive feedback. Have I Skype with Ken Brown? No. Ken Brown will not speak to me. I don't think Ken Brown wants to talk to anyone outside of his hug box. David says, I'm thinking of doing a series of book recommendations and book reviews. Okay, back to this new history of YouTube. So one of the earliest speech guidelines, videos were banned if they maliciously spread hate against a protected group. But those videos just touting bigoted views as commentary, for example, Andrew Dice Clay or Ann Quarter were marked as racy and given age restrictions. So you had to log in and testify you were over 18. So locating and drawing these lines was never easy nor unanimous. Moderators found one account of a man ranting in his room about kosher food. He was preaching a fringe conspiracy accusing rabbis of enriching themselves from a kosher tax. So to get kosher food, you have to have kosher supervisors and kosher organizations that do get money for putting their kosher stamp on food. So this guy was pringing about, uh, ranting about rabbis enriching themselves from a kosher tax, but uh, YouTube staff did not believe the man was directly slandering Jews. So isn't that what Kevin Michael Grace got in trouble for? Wasn't his journalism career essentially ended? when in an article on the Kashrut kosher certification process, he raised in a sentence or two, does this, does this increase the price of food and beverages? Because so many of them want to have kosher certification. So when YouTube expanded uh, and uh, there was something of a culture clash with Google, and so Google, when it took over YouTube, initially set up YouTube as a separate kingdom, but Google wanted YouTube to remove any video that glorified illegal activity. So any video that showed graffiti, flamethrowers, or driving above the speed limit. And Google salesmen wanted video scrub that offended advertisers. And so there was an entire staff meeting devoted to addressing booty shaking videos. And requests for takedowns on YouTube varied by geography. The British were okay with sexual content, but they berated YouTube for showing hooliganism. And the British Cultural Secretary demanded that YouTube place warning labels on clips with foul language. Now, starting in about 2012, a few YouTubers found something that worked on the platform. Long daily talk shows like on AM radio. So in hindsight, many would say they forgot to, they did not spot the flaws in letting millions of people broadcast themselves with Google's backing and virtually no checks. And the company didn't measure the percentage of watch time that came from videos viewers flagged as inappropriate or undesirable. Staff didn't hold lengthy debates over who should have a right to monetize. So starting 2012, 2013, 14, Google expanded monetization from about 20,000 people to about 20 million people. And then after the, the troubles that came with the rise of the Trump movement and the alt-right, starting in 2018, Google, again, restricted monetization to 40,000, 50,000 people instead of 10, 20 million. 
So Google at one time was very encouraging of Russia Today, the TV network funded by the Kremlin. It was excelling on YouTube. It mixed political coverage with tantalizing clickbait clips of cute animals, car crashes, and couples caught having public sex. One of the early stars on YouTube was Steph, Stefan Molyneux, this boring, stocky, avuncular Canadian with an accent hinting of his Irish roots, talked about his sad childhood about dating and marriage, about big, serious topics. He could talk about anything. He spoke directly to young, disaffected men going through hard times, promising them lights at the end of their tunnels, and they listened. So Stefan Molyneux, a former IT businessman, refashioned himself in his late 30s as a grand, eloquent guru. He wore loose polos. He joined the sound of his own voice. So this is a very common journalist critique of people who broadcast themselves they they must enjoy the sound of their own voice but if you're broadcasting yourself you're not listening to your own voice it is an absurd critique i don't know anyone who enjoys the sound of his own voice right it's just such a lazy put down by this lazy left-wing writer so in 2005, Stefan Molyneux began Free Domain Radio as a podcast and as a movement. He joined YouTube soon after, posted video such as an introduction to philosophy and self-help lectures like Tony Robbins, many over an hour or two long. After the financial crisis, he spoke about the economic pain. College students have a right to be depressed. He said their society is unsustainable. He delivered his lectures framed as commentary on Harry Potter and Star Wars. Some viewers were captivated equally by his worldview and by slices of personal life he shared. Caleb Kane, a college dropout in West Virginia who liked the dead Kennedys, discovered Stefan Molyneux in his YouTube sidebar. He admired the domestic bliss the guru spoke of with his wife and daughter. I want all that stuff, Kane told himself. If I just watch more and more, I'll be like Steph. Press one. You thought, maybe if I just watch more and more, I'll be like Steph. So... Molyneux didn't start on YouTube as especially political. If the subject came up, he was a libertarian. But politics started to creep in, particularly after America elected a black president. Yeah, it's all Barack Obama's fault. So Stefan Molyneux had come to concern some parents. Barbara Weed, a British politician, grew alarmed when her son suddenly left home, leaving only a note that said, please do not contact me. She discovered that her son had joined others in following advice from Stefan Molyneux to abandon their family of origin to defu, as he called it. They're unable to work through problems with therapy. So Molyneux and his wife, a therapist named Christina Papadopoulos, preached this online and at gatherings at their home. They invited listeners to donate for special courses not on YouTube, offered a $500 fan subscriber level called Philosopher King. And so as early as 2008, newspapers were using the word court in their coverage of Stefan Molyneux. YouTube had no rules in place to investigate what its creators did off its site. Shocking. Shocking. So for the first 10, 12 years of YouTube, they had no rules in place to monitor what people were doing, what their creators were doing off of YouTube. My God. How, how naive was that? They, they didn't have like totalitarian espionage about what their creators were doing off the platform. So that changed in... 2019, when Jared Taylor, Vidare, Richard Spencer were all banned from the platform, that's when they started explicitly taking people's off YouTube 
behavior into consideration. So when JF Garapi started doing his show live on exclusively on Odyssey, YouTube then demonetized his channel. So since about 2018, 2019, YouTube, along with Twitter, takes into account what you do off their platform. That uh, helps decide how they're going to treat you on their platform. But just imagine those days when YouTube and Twitter didn't monitor what you did off its platform. But then you got all these aggrieved men online becoming an unstoppable political force right now. If, uh, if aggrieved blacks or aggrieved women became an unstoppable political force, that's a wonderful thing. But when you had aggrieved men becoming an unstoppable political force, that was dangerous and creepy. Stefan Molyneux told a Canadian reporter in 2008, I'm sure a few marriages broke out because of feminism. That doesn't make feminism a cult. So YouTube was media dictated by the masses and made for dirt cheap. It was the future of entertainment, except there was this undercurrent of ugly misogyny that boiled over. So hatred of white people is not ugly. Hatred of Christians is not ugly. Hatred of men, right, is not ugly. It's only hatred of protected groups and of women. That is ugly. So as early as 2011, the amazing atheist posted clips on the failure of feminism. Richard Dawkins wrote in response to a woman's video diary of an uncomfortable sexual encounter. And you started to have criticisms, God forbid, of feminism. And we got Sargon of Akkad, who's described as a windbag Brit who called feminism a toxic, sick ideology. Stefan Molyneux, the guru, turned sharper and angrier. He began a series of shows called True News, barring Rush Limbaugh's proven tactic of framing himself as loyal opposition to the mainstream media. He posted frequent clips titled The Truth About Karl Marx, Israel and Palestine, Martin Luther King, The Ferguson Riots, Frozen, Wonder Woman. Right, these movies were Trojan horses for the feminist agenda. The media, he said, was enforcing the feminist agenda by putting the social justice warrior thumbscrews right up the urethra, right into your balls. 2013, he had the George Zimmerman trial grip the nation. Molyneux posted a 35-minute video, The Truth About George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. So I've watched a few Stefan Molyneux videos. I've I found them generally impressive. I mean, I probably haven't watched more than than six hours of Stefan Molyneux, but uh, what I know about him, I nothing he said has, has bothered me. Molyneux spoke about racial differences in IQ, leaning on a euphemism called race realism. How is race realism a euphemism? What is it a, a euphemism for? Wow. Apparently it's a euphemism for eugenics. That's absurd, right? Just because you believe in uh, race realism doesn't mean that you want, uh, say, state-enforced eugenics. Stefan Molyneux became obsessed with the refugee crisis. So obsessed is a cheap put-down that people give to anyone who devotes any more attention to a particular issue than the person thinks is appropriate. So when I started writing about Dennis Prager, I was obsessed. When I wrote about the porn industry, I was obsessed. When I wrote about uh, rabbis who were in sexual scandals, I, I was obsessed with that. So whenever I hear anyone using 
the word obsessed, I know that they are engaged in very lazy argument. So Sefat Molyneux called the refugee crisis the burying of Europe. He decried replacement rate from Muslim migration. He began a series called The Untruth About Donald Trump. So he cataloged the press's misrepresentations of Trump. Each Molyneux video ran more than an hour. Wow, how sinister. These videos are running more than an hour. Don't let anyone tell you how you think or feel, says Stefan. Wow, what a sinister message. Don't let me do it. Don't let anyone else do it. Don't let the mainstream media do it. They're not trying to inform you. They're trying to control you. These episodes did well on Reddit. How scary. So newcomers were drawn into YouTube's alt-right orbit. They made cameos in each other's videos and posted replies and debates. They exploited search. All right. Alt-right is the only people to exploit search. So, so other people use search, but alt-righters exploit search. Other people are diligent, but the bad people are obsessed. Apparently, Milo Yiannopoulos persistently ranked atop YouTube search results for the term Gamergate. Searches for Islam, Syrian refugees, back, back videos from alt-right YouTubers. Well, the only reason that the alt-right was that successful is because they were producing compelling content. Prague University charged YouTube with restricting its videos. YouTube convened another listening session in its New York studio inviting representatives from PragerU and a few dozen other conservative YouTube channels. Isn't that nice? So when PewDiePie did some wacky stuff, some reference to Nazis, YouTube arranged a call with PewDiePie, YouTube's policy chief, Juniper Downs. Juniper Downs. What type of person is named Juniper Downs? She is global lead community policy at uh, Google. Okay, here she is, uh, Juniper Downs. What a name, Juniper Downs. All right, so she she convened a call, right, with PewDiePie, the anti def and the anti defamation league. And so the Anti-Defamation League su suggested to PewDiePie that he make a public donation to Jewish groups and a public apology and a video about tolerance. PewDiePie apparently stayed mostly silent in the meeting like a bored schoolboy, and nothing came of the meeting. Damn, he didn't donate to the ADL? Didn't produce a, a video uh, on tolerance? Then in... Uh, was it late 2018, early 2019, YouTube's largest advertisers boycotted the site because of concerns about brand safety. YouTube lost about $2 billion in revenue. So in January 2018, a live stream debate between Sargon of Akkad and Richard Spencer, an avowed white nationalist, right, finished on top of YouTube's trending tab briefly. YouTube would eventually bar flat earth videos and debates like that from its promotional system because they're harmful. So YouTube began factoring in what its creators did off its site, including their tweets, everything. They tightened their rules for what appeared on their site. They adjusted their algorithm to feature more authoritative news sources. 
and they started building on the concept of responsibility. A tech conference invited YouTube head Susan Wojcicki to speak. She would not attend unless the conference had armed security. So various shootings reminded YouTube of the gravity of their responsibilities, how they controlled a system that had paid millions of people, given them a stage with few rules and limitations, then had swiftly taken much of that away. Major decisions never pleased everyone, and YouTube began to accept this. There are no right or wrong answers. There are just trade-offs. That is a great, great way of summing, summing up much of life. Sometimes there are no right or wrong answers. Sometimes there are just trade-offs. So in 2020, YouTube earmarked $100 million for black creators. Well, wow, that sounds really racist. So on the basis of skin color, YouTube doled out $100 million only for black creators. So June 29, 2020, YouTube purged several inflammatory white men, including David Duke, Richard Spencer, Stefan Molyneux, Vider, Jared Taylor. And uh, what about ContraPoints, the transsexual commentator, much celebrated. The, the New Yorker did a long article on ContraPoints, did not have one negative or even skeptical sentiment in the entire article. It was nothing but extolling. His virtues is a male to female transgender. So apparently ContraPoints was doxxed repeatedly. She felt the strain of persistent exposure and output familiar to most YouTubers. Let's be honest, this is not good for anyone's mental health. She developed an opioid addiction during the pandemic, and she called her YouTube career a contributing factor. Wynn earned Google ad money, but most of her work was funded from Patreon. She never heard from anyone at YouTube. Wow, how sad is that? You have a YouTube creator, male to female transsexual, who develops an opioid addiction. She doesn't hear from anyone at YouTube. How uncaring is that? What's the matter with YouTube? Why, why did they reach out to her? You might see your cranky uncle ranting about vaccines on Facebook or Twitter, but you won't see that so much on YouTube. Political content repeatedly tops Facebook's popularity charts, but YouTube is still dominated by music, gaming, and kids' videos. Okay. Let's play a little here from Hal Brands, Michael Beckley on the emerging conflict with China. Two big problems. One is going to be economic stagnation uh, in the coming years. The other is going to be strategic encirclement. As more and more countries do more and more to try to protect themselves from Chinese aggression in, in ways that we're seeing right now through the Quad or AUKUS or, or other initiatives. And so that's going to make the long-term future look more problematic from China's perspective. We're not forecasting that the regime is going to collapse or that there is uh, going to be a revolution in China. We're, we're forecasting that China is just simply going to have difficulty achieving the strategic goals that it has laid out for itself, which are pretty ambitious. And so as that happens, China may actually become more dangerous. There will be more of a temptation for Chinese leaders, notably Xi Jinping, to make big gambles now to try to achieve things that may not be achievable forever. We go into some detail about what those things may be, everything from the incorporation of Taiwan into the PRC to a variety of other things. 
But historically, it has been peaking revisionist powers, not rising revisionist powers that behave most aggressively and most dangerously. And that's what we're worried about in the Chinese case. So how both of you in your book catalog the history of falling powers acting aggressively, including Germany in the early 1900s and Russia in the current moment. Could you take us through some of those examples and explain why they're so instructive uh, to the current situation? Fascinating topic. We'll have to cover it another day. Bye-bye. Rising intonation, rising pitch. Notice the level of excitement and hope that that generates. Bye-bye.